Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Joshua Friedman. Hello and welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. I'm Joshua Friedman, news editor at Rappaport. On this episode, I was joined by Nicholas Moltke, founder and CEO of Botswana Mark, a new brand bringing Botswana diamonds to consumers in the US. Nicholas spent 16 years at De Beers, including as its vice president of sales. We spoke about how Botswana Mark plans to target the American consumer, the wider topic of origin verification, and what De Beers' changing relationship with the Botswana government could mean for the country and the industry. Enjoy the episode. So Nicholas, it's great to have you on this podcast and uh, welcome. Thank you, Joshua. And thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Likewise. I wanted to start by just hearing about you and Botswana, Mark. We're here to talk about Botswana, Mark, but I know your background is with the beers and you've got quite a rich background. Maybe you can give us a bit of an introduction to how all of this came about. So, you know, I'm originally from Copenhagen, but I moved to London when I was 20 because I was sort of mildly obsessed with gemstones and diamonds. I studied gemology in Hatton Garden, and this was back in 2001, quite a few years ago. Um, joined De Beers in 2002 on a graduate training program. And initially I thought it was only going to be for a few years that I was going to be working at De Beers, but it ended up being a career of 16 years that I spent with De Beers doing various things. And, you know, in the beginning, when I joined De Beers in 2002, they had just rebranded from being the syndicate or the CSO, as there was known back then, to the DTC. And Nikki Oppenheimer was still sort of owning the company and running the company. They had huge stockpiles and it was very much... I guess, still the old De Beers that we knew it back then that I joined. I started training in a place called Stills House and spent two years in the training department. Part of that time was going to Portugal to learn how to polish diamonds. I worked in a factory that De Beers had down there for four months. I learned how to value all the different sizes of rough diamonds that De Beers produced and also specifically worked in what they used to call the large stones department. So anything above 10.8 carats. So I got a really you know, good insight into the product and how to work with it and how to value it. And it was really in 2002 that I joined what was then called the negotiations department. That's the department that was responsible for buying diamonds around the world. And that was, I think, in many ways, the initial sort of, I guess, the shaping of my understanding of where diamonds come from in the world and what impact they have on different communities. Because I started going to Russia, I started going to Canada, I started going to Southern Africa, and I started to learn that... You know, it's very different. The social economic impact of diamonds that are mined around the world have very different impact on the communities from where they come, depending on the countries where they're mined. And so, you know, for quite a few years, I was traveling to Russia. Well, at that stage, De Beers was buying from El Rosa. It was the last three years of that contract that was in place that ended in 2007 because of the EU had a sort of rule that was anti-competitive for the two biggest producers to buy and sell from each other. And then very quickly after, you know, stopping buying in Russia, I started traveling to Southern Africa, Namibia, South Africa, and Botswana, but also at that stage to Canada, where De Beers had opened mines in Canada, again, valuing and buying the production for these countries. So, you know, my first trip to Botswana was actually, you know, probably around 2006. At that stage, De Beers still had what was called Opera House, which was the old sorting and valuation facility, which was in the center of Gaborone. They later then obviously built a very large modern facility close to the airport. 
But I was doing that for 10 years of my career at De Beers. And in 2011, Oppenheimer decided to sell their stake to Anglo-American and sort of basically, yeah, as you know, they pulled out of De Beers. And it was around the same time that De Beers signed the contract with Botswana to move the entire sales and marketing of De Beers from London to Botswana and to really build this entire capability in Botswana. It took a few years, obviously, from 2011 to it actually happened. It was around 2016, 17, that actually families then relocated to Botswana. At that stage, I had moved into sales. So I was a key account manager in London and sort of getting to grips with the midstream. I'd been working very much with the mining side. I got to grips with the midstream. And then I became you know, part of those 100 families that then moved from London to Botswana. And I moved with my family to Botswana and ended up spending five years living in Botswana, then moved up and became vice president of sales. And that was really the five years that really shaped my understanding of how important diamonds are to the community in Botswana and what it has done. Because, you know, I lived there, I saw it myself and obviously, you know, got under the skin of the community and the people and made friends and traveled far and wide. And so at the end of the 16 years, after I'd done my five years in Botswana, I moved myself and family to Antwerp. And that transition time really that the idea of Botswana really started. So quite a long-winded answer to the question, but that was kind of the, you know, the bit of background about how I started at Beers and what I did. And then at that stage, the transition period when I left De Beers, which is now sort of around six years ago, that's when I really started. What were those thoughts about Botswana, Mark? I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious what there is to sell about Botswana. That it's, uh, a lot of being said about the success story of, of Botswana. How did you believe that you could make use of that? I think in many instances, that time was a time of change. Obviously, I've, I've been living in Botswana. I'd sort of seen the ambition firsthand of what the government of Botswana, the ambition and their dreams for the country. And I think that influenced me. At the same time, De Beers had launched Tracer. They also launched Lightbox, which was in 2018. Right, Tracer being the traceability blockchain. Exactly. And Lightbox being the, uh, yes. the, the lab-grown jewelry line. Exactly that. And I was in Vegas for the JCK show in 2018, and I saw the launch. And I think both those things also shaped my view of what the future would look like. On one side, obviously, you know, there was this very strong move towards traceability and provenance and being able to trace, you know, trace the diamonds. And on the other side, up until 2018, we'd obviously seen how a number of lab-grown jewelry companies were branding themselves as eco-friendly and sustainable, and that consumers were sort of gravitating towards this proposition in the market. And so at that stage, I had a view that on one side, we'll see this sort of continuation of interest in lab-grown and the market really growing. Probably, I think it surprised everybody how quickly it's grown since 2018, that market. But on the other side, we'll obviously see, you know, the continuation of diamonds being traceable and the need for consumers to understand that actually to have a full understanding of where the diamonds come from. But I think I also at that stage thought to myself, you know, what happens the day that all natural diamonds are traceable? Okay, it might not be that all diamonds are traceable in the future, but let's say the significant share of all diamonds will be traceable. And I kind of put myself in the shoes, as she says, of a consumer. So, okay, I walk into a retail store and I will be able to see that this diamond is from Nibibia, this one is from South Africa, this one is from Angola, and this one is from Canada. But what does that mean to the consumer? What does it mean that it's from Canada and Namibia? What is the additional, why should I as a consumer care about that? And why should I pick one over the other? And what does it mean me buy a Canadian versus a Russian diamond versus a diamond from Angola? That's really one of the things that you know we were very focused on from the beginning of Botswana Mark is basically building the entire storytelling around that to differentiate the product. And obviously, so much has been done before I kind of started this the last 40 years. You've seen how Botswana has moved from being one of the poorest countries in the world 
to being one of the fastest growing economies in Africa. And that is obviously something that you know, De Beers and the partnership with government has achieved. But for the consumer at retail, having that storytelling of it being single source and having full provenance alongside understanding what benefits it has to the communities it comes from was really the idea I had. And it felt it was such an important story to tell and it hadn't really been told out there, despite there having been Canada Mark and Forever Mark as well in the market. In terms of what Botswana Mark is, I mean, it's would you describe it as a it's a, a retail brand mm-hmm. in which you sell diamonds that were mined in Botswana and are traceable to Botswana. And then you're selling that at the retail market with this Botswana Mark retail brand. Is that a fair description of what's going on? Yeah, it is. I think in many ways, having worked in De Beers, I really had a good understanding of Forever Mark program and you know what was really successful about it and perhaps some of the shortcomings. And Canada Mark was there many, many years before Canada Mark was, you know, I think it's 20 years old by now. And I think where Canada Mark was very much a response to blood diamonds or, you know, the blood diamonds of the 70s or the 80s were Canada Mark was sort of, you know, here's a conflict-free diamond. It's American or it's a Canadian diamond and it's conflict-free, but that was about it. You know, I think Forever Mark didn't have the single source origin claim because, you know, any diamond could be a Forever Mark diamond as long as it met the rarity standards or the quality standards and that it was ethically mined, but it was not single source. So, you know, Botswana Mark really combines the two in that way that it is single source. Botswana obviously being the biggest diamond producer in the world as well. So there is scale. You know, that was one of the things with Canada Mark. I think they're also trying to build those re- that retail program with not having you know the production behind it. It, it can, I think proved challenging. So there's only so much that can be done. But it has the single source and it has the traceability, which Forever Mark does not have. So you know those two things. In many ways, you know it is the positioning and retail store is, is very similar to a Forever Mark program in that it's a consumer proposition where the consumer will come in and they will explore the world of Botswana Mark and the storytelling and provenance and what difference it makes to to the communities from where it comes. And the initial plan is to sell in a few stores in Florida, correct? Yes, we've been extremely lucky to develop this strategic partnership with IDC in Florida, certainly one of the most important retailers in the US and certainly in Florida. They were also very successful with the program. And so, you know, they really know selling, you know, selling the story and have seen the success. So one of the key pillars for Botswana Mark is the fifth C, which is, you know, what we call community. You know, other people, fifth C has been branded before by other people. But for me and for Botswana Mark, it's really community. And I think that was very clear from the beginning that that's the point of differentiation compared to Lapgron, where there's not really much community on anyone apart from the people that obviously own the factories or the production facilities. They also have their own charity that was set up 20 years ago. Keith set this up 20 years ago. It's also called the Fifth C and they work with communities but is inner cities in Florida. Sorry, who's who's Keith? Keith is the owner of IDC. He started IDC. Oh, okay. And so when we started talking about making a difference for people and the Fifth C, well, there was a very close alignment. And then together with the fact that IDC, they didn't go into the lab-grown business, so they've been fully natural, a fairly unique mm-hmm. position in the US that they never entered the mm-hmm. lab-grown space. Keith has very strong values around that. So there were many things that aligned that really pointed to the fact that this could be a really interesting partnership. So IDC is the first retailer that we are launching with in the US. We're going to be in four stores by this Christmas, and then we will see how we grow it together. We're doing it in a very collaborative manner. It's not to say that we know all the answers to how consumers will respond to the proposition. So we're very keen to learn and to work with them to see how consumers react and then adapt and change things if things need to be changed in the customer journey for, for consumers. 
How exactly does the supply chain work for you? Who who buys the rough from whom? Who owns the rough and the polished along the supply chain? And also, how exactly is the manufacturing working? So in terms of supply chain, obviously, as you know, there is, you'll have in Botswana, we have ODC and ODC is, you know, the establishment of DC was really the beginning of opening up and changing the business. And that allowed for a fully traceable supply chain to be set up with full Botswana diamonds. As before, everything was bought by DTC and mixed together with the other producers and sold. So it was not really possible to build a provenance program. So everything goes back to ODC, which is obviously then their production comes from four mines, which is Arapa, Lethlikane, and Juanang. And then you have Lukara on the other side. You know, as you know, the production is very different from ODC. It's primarily bigger stones and very high value stones. So at the moment, we're really focusing on the American market, which is sort of the more, I guess, the more commercial ranges that we're looking at to sell is really going through ODC. So to your question right now, we've set up a few partnerships with people who are manufacturing from us. So they are buying from ODC and we are then basically pulling that inventory through and using that to sell to the retailers that we're working with. We've built this integration and we also have that integration into our website. So that consumers go into a store, the retail staff will, or the retail salespeople will have access to our online portal where we also have inventory listed so they can pull additional inventory or, you know, or see what is in stock um, and they can pull that into their store if they need to. Right. And according to your website, that's in India, it's Blue Star and Damanandan and in Botswana, it's Damanandan's Botswana factory? Well, it was very important for us to work with factories that are in Botswana. So everybody who we work with have retail, have factories in Botswana. So they're obviously from a manufacturing perspective, a few factories in Botswana, majority is still manufactured in India in terms of, you know, just the scalability, right? Because there's not the scale in Botswana to manufacture the volumes that ODC produce. And then on the smaller stones, we're actually looking to kind of do that in-house starting next year all the melee you know it's very difficult as you know to really have a strong provenance program in place for the smaller stones where the bigger stones are slightly easier because everything is tracked and kept separate throughout the manufacturing process the smallest are those smaller sizes are normally mixed so from the melee sizes but that's not really something we are focusing on in terms of obviously with our launch with idc because it's primarily solitaires and for bridal but for next year we're looking to build that additional capability so we can offer the full traceability on all the sizes needed and just to clarify because i'm not sure i understood it you as botswana mark buy the rough directly from odc and then you contract the manufacturing to these manufacturers is that is that right Today, we're not buying the rough ourselves. We have contractors who do that for us. Yeah. And then you buy the polished off them? Yes. Fine. Okay. Um, your plan eventually is that there should be a premium on Botswana Mark diamonds, but at the moment there isn't. Is, is that correct? And what do you see the, what would you estimate the premium could be? It's a good question. I, you know, today there's a huge amount of additional costs involved in setting up a program like this. And for us right now is really to kind of focus on ensuring that the consumers, when they come into a store in the US, that they engage with the storytelling and that all the different assets are in place that are needed for them to be able to convert, you know, potential customers. So we're looking to refine that and we're looking to see, you know, what kind of levels of conversions that we can generate before we start taking the next steps. You know, it's a very different business model compared to what Canada Mark and Forever Mark had because they were both inscription-based revenue generating business models in that manufacturers would buy the rough from the miner and they would then pay an inscription fee. And both Canada Mark and Forever Mark had very, very large, heavy marketing budgets based on the fact that could be subsidized from rough sales. So, you know, in essence, the business model is very, very different from Botswana Mark. But I think that is 
you know, certainly something that we have to see in how we refine over a period of time. But that's also very intentional because building a scale and building the revenue that needs to be built and profitability on an inscription-based model we've seen in the past is very, very difficult. So we intentionally sort of flipped it on its head. But we're treating these first four months and these first five months with IDC to see where we get. And then we'll see where we get with a premium. You know, obviously, Fibermark was being sold a premium. We do believe that if we do things right and over a period of time that we could see a premium of similar level. But it's not something that we're setting out to achieve in the beginning. I think there's a few other steps that we want to and milestones that we want to hit before mm. we get to that stage. Right. Did you have investors behind the company? Yes, there's a few. There's a few people. Right. Okay. Okay. So I actually wanted to ask about the state of the market at the moment, because it's it's a difficult time to be launching something new to the US retailer. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's um, the US retailer, but also the US consumer with inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Although the high end is doing a little bit better. How has that affected you, the state of the market at the time of the launch? Um, it's a good question. I kind of, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, Joshua, I, I kind of tried to put my blinkers on a little bit because I think I've been in the business for 20 years. So I've kind of seen the cycles and I've seen how things fluctuate and go up and down. And I think you kind of have to look long term. You kind of have to say, okay, this is something that we're building. And that's a conversation we had with IDC. This is something that we're going to do over the next 10 years. It's not just something that you do for a year and you test it and see, you know, does it work? Does it not work? You build this for the long term because both parties make big investments. And so you have to look, I guess you have to look beyond these cycles. In many ways, I kind of feel like it's the perfect time for Botswana Mark to get into the market. I think partially because obviously there's now going to come a ban on Russian diamonds, which is going to be put into effect in the new year. So I think for American retailers, to manage their supply chain risk. Having access to something to like Botswana Mark is a perfect opportunity. Secondly, I think a lot of retailers are still looking for, they've seen the success of Fovermark, but they're looking for perhaps a new proposition, a new story, and they're looking for single source and for the provenance. So it is something that has not really been, a, I wouldn't say a hard sell because we're not selling it. We're just <laughs> we're not telling them everything that is the proposition involves. But yes, obviously there is the economic situation and you know when a retailer is not seeing the level of sales they expect and the inventory goes up and the price goes down is obviously something that is in their consideration whether it's time to put on a new proposition in front of the consumer. But everything being said, this period of time that we're going through is gonna we're gonna get over that. You know, at some stage interest rates will fall. China will recover. It might take a few years before China recover, but there's also obviously wars around the world and at some stage they will end. So you know things have a way to kind of return to normality, even though in the darkest of times it doesn't seem like things will ever get any better. But I think we've been through some of these challenges before and things do get better. So I'm not too and you know, I take a long term view on this. So I'm sure there will be things will get better. And then after that, things might get worse. And you know, it go you go through your cycles, but you have to keep an eye on the long term. And Nicholas, in, in the long term, which markets do you think of would be a, of most interest to you? I mean, obviously, the US is would be the place to start. But I mean, would there be much demand in say, Europe and Canada for these source branded diamonds? And also, what sort of demand is there in China for something like this? Is this something you've looked into? Obviously, America is such a huge and important market. And certainly for the foreseeable future, we want to focus on the US. I think there is a possibility, there's opportunity in the Far East, for sure. I think initially before, you know, even thinking of China, we would probably look at some place like Japan. Japan could be an interesting market and certainly also Australia. But, um, you know, Joshua, it's not like we have a very aggressive expansion plan and we want to be yeah. in, by the end of the next year, we want to be in 100 stores. I think we're really conscious of 
building this correctly over a period of time and doing it the right way and seeing that we're getting the right commercial traction and that it works and hopefully all that premium. And if that then means that we work with slightly fewer people to get there, then that's also okay instead of overreaching, I think, and working with the people that are seeing that it's working for them and working closer with them. But I think Japan more than China, I would say in the short term and then in the long term, I mean, I don't know, seven, eight, 10 years down the line, it's difficult to say. Have to see where the Chinese market is, but obviously right now it's not. Japan was one of the early, the early markets that the beers targeted as well, wasn't it? Yes, back in yeah the eighties maybe. Yes, correct. Before China, it's more of a Western style diamond market, jewelry market than than China. Yes, I would say so. And yeah. you know, I think you know, obviously there's huge commercial opportunity in China, but I would say it's also extremely price sensitive and it's challenging to operate despite having all the you know, all the storytelling and all the branding and, and all the, the communication around something. But yeah, I'd definitely not rule it out, but not not in the short, medium term. Right. And now, zooming in on how the traceability works, when the consumers, they get documentation that shows that it came from Botswana. Yeah. And from what I've seen, there's some information also about the manufacturing. Yes. Does it actually name the manufacturer? No, I mean, we, you know, obviously there's a huge amount of data which is available when you start, you know, tracking your diamonds through the manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. And when you work in the diamond business, sometimes you also have an idea of what you want to do. You know, I've been to all these factories and I've seen all the process and I know how these things work. But sometimes it's also about distilling. I think it's, you can also overcomplicate things for the consumer and give you know, too much information. So for us, it's really been trying to understand what is the right balance and how much and how little information you give in terms of the data that we have in our supply chain. Perhaps we will find that we need more, we need less. But what we started with is, you know, we obviously take, you know, a picture of every single rough stone before it gets manufactured. So that's something that we felt was really important in terms of making sure that the consumer kind of connects with the stone and, you know, sees the origin. You know, most people wouldn't have seen a rough diamond before, so they'll probably look at it and go, what the hell is that? But, you know, that's something that we put on the provenance certificate. And we obviously talk about, you know, ODC and the mines. And then we kind of, you have on the provenance certificate, we obviously also have the GIA. So what we do is that on the GIA certification, we have have the provenance number. Obviously, the diamond is inscribed with the provenance ID, which is also listed on the GIA, and we have our logo on there. So when the consumer register their diamond, when they buy a diamond, they can go on the website, they can register the diamond, and they basically go through a process of selecting the charity that they would like us to support. So we donate 1% of our profits to three different charities that we work with on the ground. So that's kind of part of the journey of, you know, once the consumer kind of takes hold of the diamond and then they register it. To a question of how much and how little, you know, at this stage, you look at other luxury brands, they've sort of developed QR code interfaces where the consumer can scan and they sort of get all the data. We haven't gone to that degree yet. You know, I think there's many different levels we can go to, but we're sort of putting in the baseline, which we believe is strong enough for the consumer to see and have the reassurance. And then after that, we can do more if we believe that there's a value to the consumer. Because as you know, obviously, also the more you do, the more costs are involved, the more things you have to build and the more, you know, data that you provide to the consumer, there's more cost, and then the diamond gets even more expensive. So there is that balance to find. And the provenance certificate says mine by Debswana. I presume that that's out of your control. There's no way of being able to say the name of the mine because it's just when the rough is being bought from ODC, it's just aggregated from all the Botswana mines, or at least all the Debswana mines, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously the diamonds are all mined in Botswana and they come from sort of those mines, um, which is Juanango, Rapa, and Lethikani. So they could also say, you know, comes from either Rapa, Lethikani, and Juanang just 
like De Beers puts, you know, on their origin story that it comes from one of the four countries. But yeah, unfortunately, today, there's no way of doing it. And I don't believe there will be either in the future. It just doesn't make sense from a supply chain perspective for ODC and DTCB to, to keep everything separate and to be able to sell that in the separate ways. You know, I think they obviously do that on exceptional diamonds, everything above a certain size, you know, sizes, it would be much easier. But I would say where you have your commercial quantity, you know, your large quantities and your commercial producing rough, it, it's just the scale is just too high. It would take too long to be able to set up, you know, take too long, the cost would be too high. Yeah, and I think also to say may come from one of these minds of raises a question mark for the consumer rather than clarifying. I think this came up with the um, the GIA origin certificates, where some of them had a list of multiple countries that the diamond could be from. It could be Botswana, Namibia, Canada, yes, uh, South Africa, or Australia or something. And, yeah. and it just the consumers actually got very confused by that. So it probably makes more sense just to say mine by Botswana and then raise a few questions. Yeah, I think, you know, it comes down to, again, like I was saying earlier, how much and how little do you tell? Because there is a huge amount of data. And that's and most people who walk into this all, you know, they won't know, even probably have never heard of Botswana in the first place. That's kind of your starting point. So even Botswana being the biggest diamond producer in the world, most consumers would not have heard of that country. So you kind of start that with a starting point, you know. Yeah. At the end, the way that the salespeople will position and sell the brand, you know, it's just a diamond that is mined in Botswana. And then there is always the opportunity to go further down and provide more details to the customer if that's something that is needed. There has been, it does seem from the outside that there's been increased tension in recent years between De Beers and Botswana and maybe the relationship maybe isn't as warm as it has been in the past. Do you think that the, are you confident in the future of that relationship? Are you confident in the future of Botswana's rough supply and the current systems that are in place? I think the first thing to say about that, I think it's only healthy that when you have a long-standing commercial partnership like that, there's a bit of tension because even though there's a partnership, and even though because the government of Botswana or Botswana has a shareholding in De Beers, that tension of making sure that both parties get what they want, you know, I, I think it's natural. Mm. And, and obviously, it's been very successful for the last 40 years, and it's worked in favor for both parties. Now, for my first time going to Botswana back in 2004, and, you know, obviously well before that, it was very clear that Botswana has certain dreams and ambitions of where they want to be and how they maximize the value for their diamonds in the long run. You know, I think that's a very acute awareness that, first of all, lab-grown is something that is a real threat to the industry. Secondly, they have a natural resource which is not going to last for the next 100 years. So they really have to optimize the revenue they can extract from this over a short period of time before the resource runs out. And I think that's just a given and that leads to certain tension because then when you start looking at it from a commercial angle, from a government perspective, you kind of see, okay, well, perhaps we need to do this, this and this if we want to maximize our return. And that's obviously also why they, they initially started you know, ODC not only they wanted to understand what the pricing was for their own rough without outside being mixed within the world of the beers, but also because they wanted to sort of to build that capacity and capability internally in the country to be able to market and sell their own rough, which quite rightly is the right thing to do, right? In the end, it's, it's their diamonds. Now, I think the mining partnership is one that is extremely strong. And obviously, that has also been renewed. And the mining leases are now going to be running for the next 25 years, I believe. So that's you know, a partnership that's very solid. In terms of the sales, sales agreements, they've always been renegotiated and it gets renegotiated very hard. And, and now you'll see that 
obviously moving to on getting 50% of the supply from the mines in Botswana. And as I say, you know, I think it's a healthy relationship to have, you know, I would be much more worried if the government was not pushing De Beers and was not, you know, demanding certain things at every single negotiation. And I think they're doing going about it the right way. And, you know, it's been something that has been, you know, been developing. It's not something that's just been developing over a very short period of time. You know, it's still very considerate. You know, the ODC has been around for a long time. So it's not like it was set up and started selling $2 billion of diamonds a year, you know. Also, I think taking a step-by-step approach to build that capability and knowledge within their own ranks. There's also to say that there is, I think there's an acute understanding of our appreciation for how everyone knows how important this resource is. I mean, it's 50% of the country's revenue comes from diamonds. So it's not something that is taken lightly, you know, decisions around how these resources should be managed because it's so hugely important for the nation. And the gradual increase to ODC, Arcobanco Diamond Company, getting 50% of Debswana supply, I guess for you, that's good news because that gives you, for Botswana, Mark, because that gives you access to more availability. Yes, that was obviously something that, you know, when you work in the industry and you work at a certain level, you kind of get access and you kind of see what, you know, the trends are and how things develop. And that was very clear when I, you know, Wari was in Botswana. From my first trip, I went to Botswana, I kind of really saw what the dreams and aspirations were and, and how things, you know, over the 20 years that I've been in the business, how these things have developed and having lived there myself and kind of seen how things are moving. So obviously that was a key consideration for me, Joshua, in setting up this as well, in that one of the challenges with Canada Mark was really scale and having the right access to the right, you know, the goods to be able to build a program. You know, people, you know, have said to me, yeah, well, why not Namibia Mark? Why not Angola Mark? Why not South Africa Mark? But you also have to look at what commercially is what's the product is available and how you bring that to market and certainly with odc you kind of saw that clear trend going back 15 years of odc having this ambition to grow their supply and sell it themselves and that is something that will only continue into the future you know obviously there's an our sales agreement that's been put in place for the next 10 years but after that i think you can safely assume that you know the trend will continue and one day in the future certainly the government and the ODC will have the ambition to certainly market and sell the entire production of Botswana diamonds that they they get from their mine. I said finally before but I'm going to take the liberty of asking one more question. (laughs) Are there any legal restrictions on using the term mark at the end of a brand? I mean I I assume that now forever mark has done it and Canada mark has done it it's become kind of generic. Did you is that something that had to be sorted out before you did this? No there's no legal restriction obviously there's a sort of what you say there's there's trademark Mm -hmm. law uh, that goes into place but apart from getting your trademarks in place no yeah there's no restrictions no. Well, Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. It's been a really fascinating discussion. I've learned a lot. I'm grateful that you've shared your insights with us and best of luck with your venture. Thank you, Joshua. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rappaport Diamond podcast. For more discussions, news and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us at rappaport.com. Follow Rappaport Group on Instagram and follow Rappaport on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes. Mm-hmm.